Hello, good evening, and welcome to The Game is About Glory. I'm your host, Steph, and joining me tonight are Gareth and Milo. Hello, gentlemen. Hi, Steph. Yeah, very good. How's your summer going so far? Glorious. It's been absolutely fantastic weather down here. And um, yeah, my favourite time of year is so living by the coast. It's just absolutely beautiful um, kind of time of year where the weekends, every every day feels like a holiday. So yeah, good. And no, no spurs to fuck it up either. So that's good as well. Oh, Gareth, your summer. Yeah, I'm taking. I'm enjoying taking a bit of a detox from spurs. I'm only seeing things really at surface level. So these pods are, as in, particularly the week that was, are informative for me, as they are hopefully for everyone else listening to us as well. Um, really enjoyed the first test match this week, um, which I know means that our listeners from North California are probably switching off at the moment. But um, yeah, the test match was was phenomenal, and hope we've got four equally exciting ones to come up with an England victory too. But it's like the traditional summers, wouldn't it, where it was you know football until May and then the cricket took over throughout the summer until the football took over again in um, in sort of late August September time. I, I think I'm a bit of an outlier. Then I ended up in I ended up back in in London as you know for a week, and I ended up immediately up at the stadium twice once to uh, rather sadly get my name put on the back of the new home shirt, which will surprise neither of you. And the second was to walk off the roof. Uh, sorry, walk around the roof, <laughs> not walk off it. You anyway. live to tell the tale. Yes, you've yeah, been listening to... to me too much, haven't you, Steph, with my, um, <laughs> my urge to throw myself off tall buildings? Yeah, but I, I did get excited. I mean, I just got to say before we start, I did get excited about this. It's just exciting to see the stadium. And I'm sort of excited as to, as to where we're going. And, and th- that'll come out later in this pod when we discuss various transfer rooms and so on and so forth. I'm feeling a bit of hope again, which is good. Um, but anyway... Uh, To let you all out there know what we're doing this week, we're going to be talking about players who came back after shaky starts to their Spurs careers. Uh, You know, the players who overcame stuttering starts form-wise and that led to grief from the fans. And, you know, then they found a resurrection and a reignition to their Spurs careers, uh, in some cases becoming uh, indispensable. Uh, We're going to discuss those trajectories and whether impatience can sometimes be the greatest enemy of all. However, given that it is, gentlemen, as you've just been telling us, uh, the summer... And given that this is Tottenham Hotspur and even further, given that the Angier is about to start, there is a ton of stuff to get into from the past seven days. So we shall crack on with the week that was. And I will kick this off, if I may, by talking about Guglielmo. And I've butchered it now. I had said it so well in practice. William. William. Guglielmo Vicario. Guglielmo Vicario. And who Guglielmo is what in Italian, did you say, Milo? It's William. In English, it's William. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's right. <laughs> I we get that bit right. <laughs> Guglielmo is so Guglielmo anyway, in Italian. <laughs> Guglielmo is Italian, but uh, as Milo's just uh, uh, educated me and, and all of us, it is also William. So Bill Vicario, uh, it looks like his uh, search around new keeper is over. Billy's coming in. He's having his medical on Sunday, apparently. It might even have been confirmed by the time you listen to this. I don't believe it was, but I think he's making his way, uh, he's making his way to uh, N17 he- as we speak. He posted on Instagram earlier on today a photo with his agent, and um, it was some some I can't remember what the what he what he said on it, but it was kind of alluding to uh, kind of a new dawn, new new change and stuff. So he's definitely en route if he's not already been here and had it. Excellent, very good stuff. And uh, look, Vicario is one of the best keepers in Serie A last season. He's attracted the attention of Inter Milan, Bayern Munich, Manchester United, and Brighton. Uh, the la- the last of those is actually the most interesting, especially given the model that we're employing and what Brighton have been doing so successfully for the last few years. So that's pretty interesting interest in and of itself. We may have moved quickly to secure him because there were rumours that Inter were planning to recruit him to replace Andrea Nana this summer. So, uh, chaps, let's, you know, what do you think? Is it a good signing? 
Yeah, well, I've been studying Empoli extensively all, all throughout this season, so I've been watching them <laughs> like an absolute hawk, um, and therefore, no, I haven't been. Um, I, I think I probably did what many people did, was make an incredibly lazy mental comparison and 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 compared him to uh, compared him to Gallini straight away based purely on his nationality and age which is of course utter bollocks so I, I, I don't know what I would say and I, I think this is really good for the club is that what we should have been doing for a number of years is identifying players who are going to be brilliant before they go to the Premier League and make their names and then go to a value that we can't afford so I'm quite happy that we're signing a player under the radar who I'm, I'm going to assume has been has been properly scouted and researched and and that the recruitment team know his statistics and know that he's going to fit in really well. I was also just thinking, if we're assuming he's going to be our first choice goalkeeper, because we've not heard anything about about any substantive details for where Hugo might go, but we don't sign first choice goalkeepers very often. I mean, you probably go back twenty years, and we've only signed Paul Robinson, Gomez, and Lloris. The only first choice goalkeepers we've actually signed. So it is a bit of a rarity. It's not something we're used to, and I think particularly with the longevity we've got out of Hugo. Who joined us in, in 2012 it's um, it's almost quite exciting to be in this position now where we're actually looking to sign a first choice goalkeeper um i mean i think it, it's further evidence that we're you know kind of this data-based approach to scouting identifying players uh you know he profiles very well from his numbers uh for what we're looking looking for um i think one of the issues with you know people have been looking at highlight videos on youtube of him and stuff empley sit very deep um so that has an impact on on what he's doing and also if you look at his numbers some of the passing stats will look poorer because of that because of the way they play and i think um you know it's one of the reasons you know why you need context when context when you're looking at numbers um and i mean for the same matter actually you know if you look at david rare uh, if you look at his data you don't see much short passing well that's because he plays for brentford and brentford kick long you know so um right. you know that's just you you have to know kind of how a player look you know how they play and what have you i think one of the things that's encouraging if you do if you do look at his kind of his passing game is that uh and play do seem to trust him when they're under pressure that you know the, the defense will pass back through him um so which is encouraging um yeah i mean you know all signings are a risk. Keeper, keepers are probably a bigger risk than most. Um, but yeah, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty, encu- pretty encouraged by this. I think he's a decent player. And so I watched Empoli a few times last season. I've watched a couple more games since um, since we were being linked last week. Um, yeah, there's some there's some things to improve, but he looks all right. I did what I think uh, the average uh, supporter does. Um, I immediately freaked out because it wasn't David Rea, who I've com- who I'm absolutely convinced is the goalkeeper we should be getting, um, but who, as you pointed out on a pod a couple of weeks ago, is probably not a £40 million player, regardless of my thoughts that we should get him in at all costs because that's what we need. Uh, obviously, that's why I'm not a professional scout and that's why we have them and we have data uh, you know, data people. I, I did the next thing that all supporters do, which is I became a YouTube expert. Um, which is a skill that I'll be revealing later on in the pod as well. I'm a a tremendous short cram YouTube expert. So you can take everything I'm saying with a pinch of salt. Um, But I I, I tend to agree with with, with both of you. What I saw in him and what I think everyone else is seeing in him is he does seem to have, um, you know, he's got, potential to improve on skills he's already showing i mean he's in, he's really reactive and i mean you know without wishing to sound cliched he does get down very fast for a big man i was really in, you know impressed by that and what i've seen probably uses his feet to save more 
than most keepers I've seen. I mean, he uses his entire body. I am a little concerned about where he pushes the ball out. He pushes the ball. He seems to push a lot of balls right out in front of him. But, you know, that's all coaching stuff. And I'm sure that that will, you know, that will take its own its own life as he gets coached into the ways of the premiership. And, you know, I, I'm sort of left with the both of you. I'm sort of excited. OK, we're, we're, we're rolling the dice here and with some potential. And we've always done well with potential. I, th- we I, think, have. I think one of those things about that punching into the, the center, and I, there's a couple of games where that's happened, where it's get that's coming up on the clips. Yeah. Um, but I think you've got to bear in mind again that Empley sit deep, and that will yes. put him in those positions yeah. more. If we're playing a very high sure. line and he's out of his area a lot more, then right. you're going to see less of those kind of situations, and we're going to yeah. be looking to move that ball out of those situations. So, yeah, I think you know, that's part of. You know, understanding the context of where he's playing now and what no, he's being I, asked I, to do. And what I would say, in rea- there's one clip, I think, particularly where he makes a double save where he's punched triple. it into the middle. Triple yeah. save, sorry. Yeah. And his reaction time is getting back up and getting back yes. in for those is exceptional there. Mm, it's outrageous. So. And look, I mean, to underscore everything that you're saying, which I agree with, again, this is the danger of being a, a Tottenham Hotspur supporter at this time in our history, at this time of, of, of the year. You know, we all know better. But really, we also have to have a little bit of context of where we're at and what we're doing as a club and where we're building. And and I have to agree, you know, given the fact we're relying on a stats-based recruitment a lot more than we have done, this seems like a really, really great, uh, great move. You know, he is cheaper than David Rea, uh, but... You know, we're moving decisively. At least we've got some decision, and and, and, and you know, and we're moving and, forward in a direct line. It's good. I like. And that. I think, and I think that's what's really key here because the worst thing we could have done is haggle with Brentford over Raya all summer, and yeah. then either you know see loads of other moves. So you know, Nana's gone to Manchester United. Um, uh, you know, Vicario's gone to you know, gone to Inter to replace him. Blah yeah. blah blah. Those options have gone, and then. Brentford have got us over a barrel and we have to cough up what they're asking because the other other options have gone away. You know, we've yes. gone to them. They haven't budged on the price. We've said, right, okay, well, fine, we'll go somewhere else. And I think that also sets an important uh, signal for the rest of the summer as well because clubs we're negotiating with now um, will know that we've got other options there. So, you know, with Leicester, Leicester are meant to want 60 million for, for Madison, who's got a year left of his contract. And if Newcastle have you know, signed another midfielder, looks like we're the only show in town. So very, very similar to what's happening with Raya. If yeah, we cough up yeah, 40 yeah. million for Raya, then Leicester are sitting tight for 60 million for, um, no, for Madison. Yeah. And we've spunked 100, 100 grand on two players. That's, which we can get in, yeah, no, we can get into that more, and you know, we can get into all this more in the transfer window. I agree, and that when we go into the rumours, because so, I think it's an intrinsic and key point to the way the transfer window is going to operate for us this summer. So, and, no, but you know, in that situation, we're probably then only filled two positions, and then we're down to proceeds from sales to fill the rest potentially. Yeah. 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 Do you think there's a world in which we sign Raya and Vicario, and there's no, a just competition about for number one? No just chance. running that question in my head, and I've had to conclude no, unless unless David Raya goes for twenty million, and we get two keepers for the price of one. But we don't yeah. have we don't really have enough games even to keep them both. Uh, yeah, we'll, 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 yeah. Go into ne- we'll go into next season with Forster as number two, and then we'll look to replace yeah. him next summer. Yeah. Well, no, because I remember there was. Um, there was, there was not. I think it was in the Athletic earlier in the season when they were talking about Larice's demise and how the situation at Spurs is it's it's even worse because we've had this strategy of having a very clear number one and then trying to buy yeah. number two to support them, whereas other clubs might have a bit of competition there. Yeah. I just if, wondered whether you know you you'd of course you'd have to move Hugo on. You'd probably have to move Forster on as well to make that 
viable but, to happen. But, but also, I wonder whether that opportunity would exist. That we know Brentford have got that goalkeeper, and perhaps they come to a point on where the twentieth of August they think, "Would well, you know what? Actually, if we got twenty-five million for for David Raya now, it'd be worth it." And Vicario, as as good as he might look at the moment, he's still unproven at the Premier League. You won't actually know, will you, until those first couple if, of games to see how he deals with the Premier League and those specific if, situations that he's in. If Vicario thinks he's in a chance we're going to Inter Milan as first choice keeper. He will have asked for assurances about what the, our plans are at Spurs. He would be livid if he's turned down the chance to be first choice at Inter to come to us and be second choice in a in a season where he might get a couple of League Cup appearances. There's no, there's no way we're doing that. No, but the, the question crossed my mind as well. I think it's a logical question to ask for sure. I mean, we could sign David Raya and just say, look, you know, if we ever need an optional centre back, we'll just pop you in there for half a game in the League Cup. I, I say that in jest. I, I think if we're going to sign another keeper, it's going to be someone very young. <laughs> He's just completely ignored that. He's like, this rubbish. I'm not going near that. Youth player. There's a youth keeper at Liverpool. I've forgotten his name now uh, uh, that we've been linked with a, a, a bit. So that's a possibility I would have thought. But yeah. no, we're not going to. And I think Brentford have fucked themselves over here because they've got three keepers now and it doesn't look like there's anyone in the market for Raya. They've stuffed themselves. Indeed. And so just one thing, one thing briefly, actually. So in terms of the data, uh, Vicario actually profiles, the keeper he profiles most similarly to, to is the keeper that Brentford assigned to replace Raya. So very, very similar. So, um, yeah. He also has the uh, fortune, misfortune of sounding like that film starring Benicio Del Toro, Sicario. So whenever I think of him, I think of a, a badass Vicario, the badass action keeper who what? will soon take our number one shirt. His nickname is Venom, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. Blimey. Really? Yeah. Mm. yeah you like Blimey. him now, don't you? Well, I, you know me. I like anything with a little bit of fizz and pop to it. He looks like he's got a bit of that, doesn't he? he I did like, I must admit, one of the things in my YouTube, um, extensive YouTube scouting... <laughs> Um, was a I did I did like the fact he does seem to have a bit of a vibe about him. He seems to have a bit of personality. I think it's going to be exciting. I mean, that, we'll get into this in the transfer window. I'll stop because it is going to be an I think it's going to be an exciting season. Anyway, take over. He seems <laughs> quite so, he seems quite sorted actually because it'd say I did read that he's taken in a Ukrainian family like refugees to come and live with yeah, him. Yeah, I read um, that. So yeah, he does sound sound reasonably sus. Yeah. How brilliant so. was that? I read that story as well. Well, well, well remarked and uh, well brought up. We didn't have this in our notes. He did. I mean, he sounds like a top man as well. And if he's how could called, you not get behind that? If he's called Venom, then yeah, maybe we can do some merch with a kind of a, a metal oh. style t shirt with. Um... Oh, you've got, you know it. You know the the, the mind boggles with with excitement. Um, so so anyway, so, we must move on. It looks like we could have be doing the Vicario pod here if we continue. So so Milo, lead us away. So. Uh, performance director Greta Steinson is leaving the club as part of a backroom restructuring, presumably as part of Scott Munn, uh, as Scott Munn shapes his team. Steinson joined us a little over a year ago as Paratici's number two, um, and he's been stepping up since Paratici left in April. Um, does this suggest that a director of football appointment is imminent? Or am I just jumping the gun here? What do you think, guys? I've got I've got no idea because I don't think I've ever seen an organisational chart, and I've only ever heard people even close to the club speculating what it does look like. And that's not that's, that's not a criticism of the club at all. I mean, quite frankly, it's it's not up to them to to share such a such a, such a staff organisational chart. But yeah, I've got no idea how anyone fits into it or what that restructure would look like to know whether this is a good or bad thing or, or what it might lead to. I'm afraid. Yeah, I, it's it's really hard to read. I, I I don't have a conclusive view or thought one way or another. I mean, it has surprised me that we're moving so decisively and conclusively um, right now. 
I mean, everything is moving at full steam ahead, it seems. So, I mean, logic suggests that you're right, Milo, but I'm not going to say that I I believe it will happen either. I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things that we do know is that the structure that Paratici put in place was meant to be a little bit cluttered and people were treading on each other's toes a bit. Um, And I think... So the next item that we're going to go on to, I think, the next story we're going to go on to, I think, um, is similar there where we're kind of rationalizing a bit. Um, And the other thing we've got to factor in here is that we know that Leonardo Gabonini is becoming more influential and is the person driving the transfer activity at the moment. And maybe it's just that our our chief scout is trusted more or liked more. And it's, it's interesting to, to your point about Gabonini, who I know you've been on to for a long time. You actually had to remind me that he was still at the club because I confused him with somebody else that had left that had a similar last name. Um, I, I, there was a rumor I did see floated, uh, and I don't know if you saw it, uh, that, you know, he could potentially be being sort of trusted to step into that director of football role, even though he doesn't have the experience. And that actually, if he is not maybe given that chance he could someone was uh i've forgotten i've forgotten who who was uh speculating on this they were saying that maybe he could get a little was it ali gold was saying maybe he could get a little ruffled about it there, there was thought and they didn't want to lose him what do you think about about that i don't, I don't think ali gold said that but um yeah I've, there have been stories that potentially he could could fill that gap i think there's also stories that we're not actually going to appoint a um a director of football or they won't have that title as such and it could be um a kind of beefed up you know, kind of chief scout or football operations type role and I, I don't know i don't know whether that's you know how different all that is or whether it's just different titles for the same role um but i think with i think the statement around um steinson leaving um Munn's assuming some of his duties and i think ali gold has said that steinson <laughs> paratici didn't, didn't like doing paperwork which um you know I, I suppose he just jotted it down in a little black book and then uh, got someone else to do the details for him <laughs> but Ste- steinson was was picking up the the bits that paratici <laughs> didn't like doing evidently um so maybe you know scott scott Munn's come from a kind of football or sports finance background and may you know most of the People from that, well, not sports finance, but kind of finance background that I, I've dealt with have, um, have loved, loved a bit of admin, loved a bit of, uh, governance. So maybe, um, you know, maybe he's picking up that and, you know, negotiations and, and what have you. And what we need then is, is kind of talent spotters and data people, which Gabonini would fit more in with. But, you know, this is just kind of wild speculation on my part here. We do know yeah, that, well. we do know that Gabonini was in the meeting with, um, with Ange and, uh, and Levy when Ange came to the training ground. Was it a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. So, and he was def- he was definitely there when they were signing off the, the the business this summer. What you're saying makes sense in with regards to maybe there isn't going to be a titled director of football after all, and maybe we are going to move to a model where Gabonini's given you know that the lion's share of trust in in football matters and working with Scott Munn, yeah. Which look, or, or, so or maybe far, there's someone else that comes in and they you know they split the duty. I'm not quite sure. You know, it's yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, frankly, you know, as Gareth said, with you know, without the org chart, we don't really quite know what the what the split duties is and who's who's responsible for what anyway and you know can we get het up over a title or where someone's worked before (laughs) and you know like you know we brought a couple of aussies in and everyone's kind of up in arms because you know they can only name half a dozen australian footballers you know and and that's the basis of it it's just you know people make assumptions based on um, you know, like like, like Gareth's um, oh. reference point for our new Italian goalkeeper. You know, who was the last Italian goalkeeper we had? Therefore, he's crap. You know, and 
you know, we see this all the time, don't we? Yeah, we do. One thing I would like to speculate on briefly. So, sorry, Gareth, you might have had something to say about all of that. And I was just about to steam with an ambient point. No? Okay. No, no. Well, I just did wonder, as before we move on to news about Simon Davis, don't you chaps think it's remarkable that uh, that Paratici, given that he didn't like paperwork and given that he didn't like the sort of the, you know, the admin side of life, which means that he was basically just socialising all the time, right? I mean, he remained fairly trim and, and amazed that he didn't turn into a sort of a fat alcoholic. He must have, I wonder how he, I wonder how he achieved that. Because it seems to me that he was constantly out like breakfasting, lunching, dining, drinking. I mean, it sounds like a, a social, a, a, a social exercise. No rest. I, I don't want to sound bitchy, but he had a really bad complexion. He did a bit, didn't he? He looked like a man who hadn't had a good night's sleep for a long time, he, didn't he? he? Yeah, he looked it looked to me like a man who'd been up late and spent too much time in dark rooms. But <laughs> I kind of like it when we get a bit bitchy, but let's move on, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> Gareth, take us take us away from the world of like football pop bitching here and uh... <laughs> to, a, to a man with impeccable complexion. Here we go. There we Simon go. Davis. And I say, I'm, I'm contractually obli- obliged to say that this isn't Simon Davis who played for us in the early 2000s. Um, we <laughs> reported last week that academy manager or previous academy manager, Gene Rastrick, has left the club to take up a position with the FA. Um, we not only reported it, it has actually happened. This week, we bring you the news that Simon Davis has been appointed as academy director to replace him. Uh, Davis was brought to the club by Fabio Paratici as part of his restructuring last year and had a role linking the academy to the first team. Davis was captain of the famous 1992 Manchester United youth team that included the Nevilles, Skulls, Beckham, Butt, etc. After retiring from playing, he coached the youth team at Chester City before joining Manchester City's academy in 2010. He held a variety of positions at City's academy, working his way up to head of coaching, where he then joined Andelect, where he was assistant coach to Vincent Company. I do wonder if this move had happened two months ago, whether speculation would be an overdrive about his old boss joining him as well. Um, but alas, that has not happened. Company was said to be keen to bring Davis with him to Burnley last summer. I didn't, I hadn't read that far ahead. Um, but he decided to join us instead. God bless him. And whilst on academy coaching news, uh, Yaya Toure, also of Manchester City in the past, has left us in his role as under-16s coach and he is becoming the assistant manager at Standard Liège in Belgium. There's a big, big, big city flavour to it, to all of the stuff we're doing at the moment. You know, Scott Munn City Group, Ange Postacoglu has been has coached for the City Group, a City Group club before in Japan. Obviously, we've got Davis in the academy. You know, Toure was there. There's a lot of this, and you know, I think it. If you look at the approach and the structure we're putting in place as well, that's very, very similar to what City have got. If you're going to model yourself on someone, it's it's not a bad bad model to follow, but. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, the quickest promotion in history. (laughs) Our under-21s have been unrelegated after a change in the Premier League 2 format to the so-called Swiss model. You're going to love this, Steph. The Swiss model, eh? (laughs) Premier League clubs have voted to scrap promotion and relegation and replace it with all 20 league under-21 teams competing in a single division. The teams will be divided into five groups based on historic performance. Clubs will play each team in their pot twice, plus plus against five other teams for a total of 20 games. The top 16 clubs then proceed to a knockout tournament to find the league winner. Uh, This is a similar model to the one that will be used in the Champions League from 2024 to 25. Uh, gentlemen, what do you think of our reprieve and the change in the format for under-21 football to the Swiss 
model. I was going to say, Steph, you work in 30 plus years in the music industry. The Swiss model means something completely different, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yes, indeed. In terms of what does this mean? I think, I mean, it's great, it's great for us. I think um, in terms of, you know, getting relegated, there's an impact there on stature. Um, you know, the academy it would have made it more difficult for us to bring in players. And one of the things, again, we've got better at over the last couple of years is bringing in young players from other clubs, academies, and and kind of um, uh, you know supplementing that you know players that we've developed ourselves with you know, good players we've got from elsewhere. And we know that there's a couple more to come in this summer. So from that point of view, point of view, it's really good. I think this new structure sounds a bit interesting. I th- you know, it's slightly interesting. I think it's less games than they would have played in Premier League two last last season but it's more games than we would have played um after relegation because it's a smaller league that we we would have gone down to and i think if you get into those knockout rounds then i think that's probably quite a good experience for the players in, in getting involved in games that matter and that's one of the problems with academy football generally is that there's you know it's not competitive enough and doesn't really give good experience so i think maybe that structure of actually having games that mean something might might be good I think it's another roll of the dice that, that whether it's the Premier League, the FA, just haven't been able to work out how you deal with what happens past the first team football and that link in from the, the academy. Uh, just makes me wonder how long will it be before they just go full, full circle and go back to having a formal reserve team who play on the weekends when the first team are away at the at the main stadium, as was the as was the case for many, many years, kind of well into the well, well into the eighties. I can remember going to White Hot Lane and watching our reserves play on a Saturday afternoon whilst the first team were away um be interesting to see how it works out but like i say I, I, no one quite has found the solution have they yet to what should happen with reserve team slash under 21s football and how you make it competitive and of most use to teams to to give players the opportunity to find that bridge between academy and first team football yeah, I mean, I have nothing meaningful to contribute to this. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm just sort of, flu- you know, it, it, sure, it sounds great. I mean, what I will say is, and to contribute something meaningless to it, I've just looked up the Swiss model, um, and the first thing that pops up is that it's an automated protein homology modelling server, which I'm sure that that's not the Swiss model that they're no. basing this on. No, not at all. Um, yeah, I look, it seems that this is, a, I will say, it does seem like a, they, they're going to start bringing this format to every thing right i mean are we is this sort of another way of tipping into like eventually getting rid of promotion and relegation i i, I don't know there'll be no promotion yeah. and relegation yeah in in the in premier league too I, I don't know whether this is going to go everywhere yet steph i don't know whether your precious europa conference is safe from this <laughs> swiss model or not and um yeah you know i think we just have to have to wait and see won't we but it's just i mean one of the things it does again it's sort of a slightly esoteric view it does bring into that sort of the americanization of sport even more where there are no promotions and relegations across various leagues in various places and i just wonder if someone somewhere is looking 10 years down the line and thinking well there's slightly more i don't know um slightly more in it Mm. if you don't have any promotion relegation if you just finish top and bottom i i I don't know is this what this is signaling or I think no, well, I there's, so. there's less okay. of a need for the meritocracy when you're playing uh, effectively youth team football because as we've uh, we, we're a great case in point this year that majority of our under 21s who have underperformed over the course of the season won't be at the club next year so right. it's not as if you build and you, you build a team to try and stay up and or to get right. promoted from it it's it's very much down to the facilities and the resources and was it the EPPPP I don't know if that's been changed or, or outdated really but it's essentially everything that happens academy statuses for clubs extends to their 
under-21s. Now, I mean, this is one of those wonderful moments in the pod where, Milo, if you if you wish to lose a few minutes, you can just cut out what I've had to say here because I've evidently had... No, I mean, seriously, I, it's, it's, I've not had much to contribute. So um, I think you've both covered it very well. Let's move on to transfer rumours. <laughs> and you're going to kick us off, oh, aren't I'll, you, Milo? I'll pick this up. I'll pick up transfer <laughs> rumours. So um, Xavi is meant to be very interested in bringing La Celso to Barcelona. <laughs> Fantastic. Go for it. Uh, but they don't want to pay for him, I think, is the, is the understanding. <laughs> well, that um, doesn't work like that. Oh, mate, my old friend. <laughs> um, I mean, so, yeah, what a turnaround that would be. Um, Fabrizio Romano has said that we're interested in Bayer Leverkusen centre-back Edmund Tapsoba. Uh, Romano has also said that we're interested in another centre-back, um, Wolf, Wolfsburg defender Ricky van der Ven, um, and that some talks have already taken place. Um, we'll come back and just pick up a discussion around kind of all these players once I've rattled through them. Uh, Romano has also said that we're going to push again this week for James Madison and that he's remains the priority target in that position for Postacoglu. The Telegraph report that we're interested in Juventus centre-back Gleason Bremer, who we were linked with when Conte was manager, when he was at Torino. Um, and Alistair Gold has said that Matthew Craig uh, is close to agreeing a new deal uh, he, Matthew had a great season last year you know, for the under 21s was on the bench uh, you know, quite a few times for us you know, including the last three games of the season and came on for 13 minutes again in our final game of the season against Leeds United any of these um, rumours tickle your fancy gents? yeah I've, I'll, I've got I'll a few kick things off. to say about a few of them <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I'll kick off. Uh, you know, as I uh, alluded to earlier, I've become one of the great uh, YouTube, uh, you know, scouts of, of our of our time. Um, and obviously, now that I'm seeing these names, having not really followed them during the season, I'm doing my quick revision. I mean, I'll say that one thing uh, I liked about Tapsoba is that, you know, he does seem to like to play very high. <laughs> he does look pretty smooth. When I say very high, I mean high up the pitch. Um, he a uh, very smooth defender, uh, smooth in the challenge as well. And but he seems to have this wonderful slide rule pass on him. I mean, that's popping up in all the highlight reels I'm seeing. Um, you know, I think you know, much like our next, the next centre back that came up in this rumor rumor mill. It's exciting that we're looking at players who seem to suit the manager's vision of the football that we're going to play, and it's exciting that youth is a factor. There seems to be a congruence about all our moves in the transfer market, even in the rumor stage. That is, I find very exciting, and that brings me to uh, Ricky Van der Ven, who, apart from having an absolutely brilliant name, which deserves to be sung uh, by, by our supporters, you know, he's a left-footed centre back, right? He's twenty-two. Six foot four. I read he's incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, but he's aggressive. Um, he does seem a bit naive when it comes to his positional awareness in the, the in the clips I've seen. But he's got the speed to recover right now, and I suppose he's going to be able to. You know, you can coach that. You can coach the positional awareness into him at twenty two years old. And you know, the negative is that he has another four years at his contract with Wolfsburg. So I don't know how much it would cost to get him out of it. If indeed this is a real thing that we're looking at, um, and also you know, and I t- sort of put this to both of you as well. I mean, is you know, can we really have uh, can we have a left-sided centre-back that aggressive? Uh, or is it just going to be Ange Ball, like super exciting, we're going to be mental? Which I would be fine with. I would be. I would be fine with that. But uh, yeah, I, I like the look of both of them. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think they're aggressive in in that way. I don't, Just on... But I mean, I think they're both really good players. They're both ones that I'd had on my list of kind of potential signings. I'd watched them a bit during the season. So the ones I'm you know, familiar with, yeah, they're both quick. They're both good on the ball, very comfortable under pressure, good passers. Um, 
Van der Ven, I think, was the quickest centre-back in the Bundesliga last season. His top speed was 35.97 kilometres an hour, which, um, just for comparison, in terms of like some other Bundesliga players he was up against, sorry, my spreadsheet's gone over all over the place. Um, let me just expand that, and then I can do that. So it makes him faster than um, Leroy Sane, Timo Werner, and King, uh, Kingsley Coman. Uh, in terms of you know for comparison so yeah certainly not going to have any problems with a high line if we lose possession he's going to be back there nice and quickly um i think in terms of that aggression point steph i think i think it's quite interesting so i'm going to go on a bit of a ramble here ideally what you want in a in a centre-back pairing is a is a dog and a cat uh, yep. a defend a defender who wants to go to the ball and one who'll hold back yes. and a mop up and uh, the the dog and cat um, comparison, I think it's Michael Cox, the, now the athletic, athletic, athletic. Um, it, it was um, his zonal marking pod where I think he first used it. So yeah, you want a cat. Romero is the most dog defender you're ever going to see, ever going to see. And so, you know, we want someone who isn't going to dive in, isn't going to get, you know, um, slide in on someone high up the pitch. If they're both doing that, there's going to be huge acres of space behind. Oh yeah. So, so we want someone who's going to stand off, try and guide a defender out as a forward out, try and you know t- t- usher them away. And I think in terms of this kind of compa- uh, combination in kind of dogs and cats, we all we know it instinctively. Even if you don't know the terms, you look at a good pairing, you see that. You know, of if course. you think about kind of the Italians, where you've got a sweeper and a catenaccio, you know, we've all seen this. So that's what we're looking for now. In terms of stats, I've only taken two stats here. There's there's loads of others. I've looked at the others, but just two for examples here. So Romero is in the 95th percentile for tackles of centre-backs in the top five leagues of Europe. So very, 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 very aggressive. And in the 97th percentile for tackles in the mid-third. So that's in the middle of the pitch. And, you know, that rings true. We watch him, you know, the eye test, we know that. You know, he, he's tackling in right. places where you wouldn't expect to see people. So Tapsoma, 64th um, percentile for tackles, 59th for mid-third. Van der yeah. Ven, 43rd percentile for tackles 63rd for mid third tackles so again the two of them are profiling quite similar and i think again this is further evidence that we're using data to to um uh to look Mm. at targets i think the two of them are quite similar tapsoma is more developed more ready van der ven is definitely rawer um so yeah but i think they're they're not dissimilar players and what you've but what you've said, sorry, I've cut you off. Go on. No, it's all right. So well, what, what I was going to say, there... all I was going to say is, <laughs> all I was going to say is that they're, they're aggressive in the sense that they're very comfortable playing high at the pitch. They're comfortable receiving the ball under pressure, playing out and passing. But what they're not going to do is dive in in the same way that Rom- uh, that Romero does. So we're going to have that space behind. We're going to have the, someone who can c- to cover, and with their pace, they'll be able to mop up. And I think what's interesting again about <clears throat> what I observed uh, with my, you know, YouTube uh, education, uh, and what you have uh, observed with a slightly longer view in your stats is it reminds us all as supporters that YouTube scouting is really not nearly as accurate as you think it is because again the clips I've watched, you know, they're showing the fastest, most aggressive, uh, most uh, progressive. Um, in terms of pushing forward plays that each of these players have made. And as you're pointing out, statistically, they're actually maybe a little more measured than than they appear in their highlight reels. So it's very important that we we look at the holistic picture with these things and we trust our team. One thing I think to to think about those YouTube clips, and I think this is a bit like the point I was making about goalkeepers early on. YouTube highlights compilers like muddy shorts 
So if you're a centre back yeah. and you're doing a you're doing a highlights reel, yeah. it's where it's the physical bits that you're gonna you're yeah. gonna do, or yeah. where you're stepping out and passing through. So yeah. it's that most physical stuff. And of course, when we talk about the dogs and cats, stuff. All, all, when we talk about dogs and cats, all players are on a scale there. So there's no there's very few. Romero might be the most pure dog that there's ever been, but most of them are on a scale. And neither of these are pure cats. There's a bit of both. Um, but yeah, and yeah, now YouTube. I mean, we've all looked at a, a forward on 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 YouTube we were linked with and thought we're signing the next Messi, Messi or Ronaldo. You know, it's just what those those clips look yeah, like. Yeah, but I think again, this whole data driven recruitment. Maybe it's something we can get into a little later in the uh, in the in the the summer as we see more signings come in and as we learn even more about the people making these decisions because it is so important to take that into account and we have spoken so much about this particular area of the rumor that gareth i think it's <laughs> please come in and break up our uh, excited centre-back monopoly here because i think we're both pretty excited about this are you um no i'm not excited about it at all it's speculation it's mostly utter nonsense but I mean, you guys have covered it incredibly well um but the, the the only thing i've got to add to this is that last saturday my my eight-year-old son came home he'd been out with um with my wife for the day and he came back very excited to tell me he'd just seen james madison in his car in enfield on the a10 now mm. he understands football in the through his um his premier league sticker book that he's got and become quite interested in this year mm. i mean i suspect what happened is he has seen a caucasian male in a car um who's got a slick back hairstyle and he's associated that with james madison but oh, the it, cynicism it, but, but, of no, knocking down where, and in the know in your own bloodline my word well, you've well, got an, you've got an itk in your own bloodline and you're just going to knock him well like i mean this, the story the story did match up because they were they they were driving home from enfield so they were on the a10 which is where the training ground is so if oh. there is substance to it you heard it here first there we go i'm i i'm all in the one out of here when we talk about this data-led approach uh, Bremer doesn't make any sense. If you're looking at the other two, he doesn't fit that at all. He's not particularly great on the ball. Um, so I think I mean, the Telegraph is, is is trash now. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how much I believe them anyway. And it was only in their yeah. kind of transfer rumor rumor section, like roundup. But um, yeah, that yeah. he doesn't fit the profile very well. And yeah, again, some of the, some of these players we've been linked with in the past. Um, you make more sense in a back three than they would in a in a in a back four. But back and back to something you were talking about uh, when we were talking about Vicario actually and David Rea, and I think it's really pertinent with James Madison. Uh, this is another name that you know. Look, uh, it's because you know. It, I think some of us have known this anyway because we read. You know, we kind of nerd out on this stuff. But now there's the public connection with how many base clients there are at Spurs already versus the fact James Madison is also a base client, which obviously gives him a good relationship with with Daniel Levy and 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 and, and the club in general. I, I think what's fascinating here is though, if we are data driven, surely someone will be looking and saying, well, you know, I I, I wonder, uh, you know, age versus how much we're going to spend versus the fact he's not always fit and and you've and you you know I, i'm not saying it won't happen because it seems that i mean everything seems that it will but we were in this position with david rea three weeks ago where we were almost convinced it was going to happen i wonder if there aren't you know a couple of other options on the table that are going to resurface in the next week or so and and we should be prepared for that and and this is a moment where i think we really have to trust our recruitment yeah if, mean, james, if james madison doesn't come to tottenham hotspur it doesn't mean it's a failure it means as a club we're making a decision to engage in a particular type of recruitment and surely that's what we've been looking for is a cohesive direction through the club so whatever happens there we you know we should 
we've got to trust it, have we not? The, the, the failure with James Madison will be that we didn't sign him when he was at Coventry and sure. we perhaps should have got him a couple of years ago. That would have been the under-the-radar signing that very much would have fit, fitted the profile we're getting. <sighs> As you said, you're signing potentially a 26-year-old, well, signing a 26-year-old who'll be 27 in November. You think he's probably going to want a four- or five-year deal, so you're taking on a player who's going to go into his 30s who perhaps does have some injury problems and some, some issues. I mean, look, I sorry, go on, Milo. I was going to say, I mean, I think the injury uh, stuff has been a bit overblown. He, he's, he hasn't missed many games, not over the last few years. Um, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think certainly 60 million is very, very toppy. Um, I don't think he's worth, I think he's worth probably 40 million max, uh, particularly if we're the only club interested. Um, he's not going to play in the championship this season, so they've got to find someone to buy him. Um, and at the moment, we seem to be the only club in the running. So, you know, that comes into play. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think he's a good player. He's Premier League proven. We need homegrown players, which you know does kind of count in his favour. And I think this is one thing we need to think about with signing an Italian goalkeeper. And you know, we're looking at non-homegrown centre backs there. Um, it probably means that we, you know, if we're going to sign two centre backs this summer, it probably means that the other one needs to be homegrown. And I wonder whether someone like Max Kilman comes into play there because um, you know it gives us that gives us that balance. Um, you know, Madison comes in. You know, if if, if you're saying you know there's other options out there, um, if you're if we're looking for homegrown in that position, there aren't many out there that are cheap. And you know, we're probably going to end up spending kind of forty to sixty million pounds on any other homegrown option. You know, there's a couple of you know we, we you know we talked about Eze, haven't we, and others. I mean, Palace aren't going to sell anyone cheap um, unless. You know, we're taking a real, you know, a real punt. And um, yeah. so, yeah, I think, you know, he's good. I think he's good. I think it's going to happen. Evidently, um, he and his family are a lot keener on moving to London than, than Newcastle. Um, and it looks like Newcastle have got, um, you know, other targets in mind now. So, yeah, I think Leicester will drop their price and, you know, we'll send them some players. And, you know, maybe or. um yeah, we'll find, find, you know, find somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Milo, how stylistically, how close is James Madison to Alfie Devine? Because, I mean, linking to one of our three last three topics that we've covered here today, you're taking a 27-year-old and putting him on a long-term contract and you've got Alfie Devine there and you've got um, high hopes for him. I don't I don't think they're that similar. Um, I mean, I think Alfie Devine would be very good as a as a number eight in, uh, in a, in a Postacoglu system. Um, I mean, the player that Devine reminds me most of is Stephen Gerrard. And it's partly because of his adaptability. I think he could play any midfield position, you know, over time once he, once he, um, settles down and, and, um, you know, fully, fully matures. And, you know, obviously he's played kind of in the, in the forward line for the under 21s this season. Um, you know, Gerard had that kind of adaptability where well, actually, I mean, he could play fullback in midfield position and you know pretty much anywhere across the front line, couldn't he? I, yeah, that, he's the, that's the comparison I would make. I, but I think he needs he needs a season on loan, and then maybe he comes back after that. Let me let me ask you both this: um, a player that uh, well hasn't been linked in the last week, but you know, Alex Scott of Bristol mm-hmm. City is a player that we've been uh, linked with a lot. Very exciting, twenty probably about twenty million. Very versatile. Um, can you know can pretty much play any of those roles in midfield i mean is he you know would you would you consider between a having a divine and then you know signing an alex scott would that be something that you would consider doing i, I think he, instead he's come, of a no no I, I don't think he's ready to be starting for us i think he comes in as backup so i think as one of the rotation options in midfield he's fine um you know, we're meant to have asked uh, Bristol City to keep us informed of, of developments. And if any other bids come in, I think Liverpool are meant to be interested as well. He's a Spurs fan. Um, we should definitely be moving for him. Um, but, you know, if we're bringing in him and Madison, 
then we need to be seeing. We need to be moving someone on. We need to be le- yeah. Yeah, losing at least two midfielders. I would have yeah. thought. You know. Yeah. So yeah. You know. I mean, you know, So he would he would come in and learn from Madison in that case. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Scott would be would be an eight in a in a Postecoglou system as well. I don't see him playing at the base of midfield. Um, so Milo, yeah, a few I, weeks ago, you um, we were, we were talking about Ryan Mason, and you were saying that he'd reflected that when he got in the first team at Spurs, he'd maybe played a hundred games when he'd been out on loan in the football league. Or, I'm paraphrasing that. That's right. Looking yeah. at Alex Scott's stats, he's played best part of a hundred games yeah. now at Bristol City. And you compare that to Alfie Devine, who's maybe played well. What, four or five senior mm, games. Yeah. Now, Alex Scott in, could well be quite first team ready because of those mm. experiences. He's, I, had. he's effectively been out on loan. Yeah, at the championship. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think if we're bringing him in, him in, you'd be looking as a first team squad player. He might do a deli and come in and just you know blow the league apart and you know become impossible to drop. But you know, how many times does that happen? Not very often. So yeah, you know, it's possible he could be there, but you wouldn't want to bank on that as a signing and say that's our main central midfield creative. Um, you know, signing for the summer, it'll be putting huge pressure on him, and I, I think the chances of it paying off are slim. Um, yeah. but yeah, as one or two signings in that position, great. I think he's really good. I like him a lot. Yeah, I think, I think also, uh, like, just to tie this bit off, I think, like everyone has been saying, I, I certainly think that Leicester have put themselves in a corner a little bit. Uh, with asking for 60 million for Madison. And I think this is a deal that we could well see rumble on for a fair few weeks. He does feel he's going to end up at our football club. Um, yeah, it also Lester, feels like the sort Lester of thing. Brentford, haven't they? They have a little bit, yeah. I would agree with that. And it does seem also to be the sort of signing that, whilst I don't think we should be signing anybody to keep Harry Kane happy, I mean, Harry Kane is going to be here for a season regardless. I don't. I think it would make things maybe a little, little more chipper than they would have been previously because obviously the two of them have a pretty good you know relationship so I mean, you, it makes you sense. say that you say that though madison signs you know poro there kane's not going to get to take any free kicks is he so you know you think it makes him happy but does it really <laughs> well yeah there would be a problem i'd like to see them all sort out on the pitch so anyway regardless we're, we're, i think that we've uh all agreed it would be nice to see him come in but look we trust the scouting that we're doing right now. That's what we're seeing with these rumours. There's a lot of uh, scouting that's data-driven. We trust it. Let's see where it brings us. So now we come to the the, the comebacks. Uh, we're going to get to those players who had a slow start to their Spurs career. And, uh, you know, we're going to look at some of the reasons for that. And, you know, the fan perceptions of them. They were struggling. You know, did they get back on course? Uh, how, how they got back on course? What helped them turn it around? It's going to be a bit of a chinwag about all of those things. And, uh, you know... In this category, here are the players that we thought of. Okay, these are just the names we thought of. You'll have that. You'll have some, and feel free to let us know on social media what your names might have been. But ours are Musa Dembele, Gareth Bale, Stephen Carr, Harry Kane, and Musa Sissoko. Um, chaps, as we discuss, let's go through this just with general questions, and we can weave in and out of all those names in relation to the questions asked. And so, I suppose that you know, the first thing is, what were the reasons for their slow starts at Spurs? Who wants to take that one on to kick us off? Well, I thought, looking back at my notes, Dembele and Bale, there's actually a lot of similarities in them. So, A, they were players that we were we, we kind of knew a little bit about, or we knew what they would bring to, to a team, if not out into their team. So I think, as Milo will come on to, that was possibly one of the problems that they that they had. So they were both known quantities to an extent. I mean, both, actually, both Dembele and Bale had immediately started quite well for us. So Dembele scored in his debut against Norwich for us, and it wasn't that long after that he scored that goal against Leon that kept us in the you were in the UEFA 
Cup. Um, Bale equally also started really well. So he scored twice in by the end of the summer in that first year. He scored a free kick against Arsenal, and then he scored. Um, he also scored a goal against Fulham in a game that Berbatov scored, and we won three all. The other thing they both had in common: they were playing in struggling teams to start with, and their positions and their roles were never particularly well defined. Um, both of them really got to a point where I wouldn't say they were ever booed in the same way that some players were, or mm. really derided or ridiculed. But I think with both of them, probably a couple of years into their, their, their the places with us, you just ask the question, well, if they weren't here tomorrow, we wouldn't miss them at all. And it's really then that someone's found something else in them or they've been able to step up again before moving on. So that's my starter for the 10 on both of those two. So, I mean, I agree with the similarities with Dembele and Bale. I think one of the things with both of them is that they were good players looking for a position almost. I mean, Dembele had spent a lot of his... Um, his earlier career, you know, up until I think the season before we signed him, playing as a winger, um, which you can kind of see with his ball carrying ability, but you know, <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't somewhere where he'd excelled, um, and it wasn't really until Pochettino turned him into a kind of you know deep deep midfielder who could break lines and ball carry um, that he really found himself. And obviously, Bale was a was a left back. Um, I think the other, the other thing with Bale is obviously he was very unlucky with injuries. Um, he got was it first season. Um, he got injured um, in December, ligament damage. Uh, Wemba um, tackled him and, um, and he hurt himself. And then in in June 2009, he had knee surgery, which delayed his comeback, uh, you know, delayed his start to that season. And it, that, that comeback game when he came on as a sub against Burnley was actually his first Premier League win. And I, I think the thing I remember at the, during that period, and, you know, this is kind of... Um, the idiocy of fans, you know, it kind of links in with the, the, the stuff we were talking about earlier on about, you know, players from a country and you have one player from a country. So therefore another one from that country is going to be similar to them or something like that. And people see a kind of run of games and everyone was talking about him having a curse and all that kind of crap at the time. And, um, I, I remember people like kind of groaning, but when his name was on a team sheet saying, Oh no, we're going to lose. He's playing. And, you know, kind of this understanding of, <sighs> It's not even stats, is it? It's, it's kind of like it's, it's a fact. It's, it's sorry, it's a yeah. you know observation become uh, becomes a truism kind of thing, and I think that kind of haunted him for a long time. Um, and also, you know, he was stuck behind Asua Kotto, who was actually playing very well at that at that time, so he couldn't get a game because the senior player in front of him, um, you know, was playing very well, and it wasn't really until Benny got injured that that Bale got a run and then took off. And I think the other thing you're talking about there, Gareth, in terms of um, kind of playing in struggling sides. I think that's probably true of, um, you know, Stephen Carr, certainly true. You know, his early time, you know, he got a lot of time there. And I think it was Ardiles manager when he first they, got, got he his chance. His debut, yeah. And the, yeah, and then it, so a lot of that, those early years it was under Jerry Francis. And I think, you know, when we were talking about this during the week, you're saying he didn't really take off until George Graham was in. But that's mm. kind of four or five years into his, his career, isn't it, with us? Yeah. Um, yeah. Harry Kane, you know, I think... Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, he got again. I think he got his debut under Redknapp, didn't he? But then you've got the time under kind of AVB and Sherwood. Like Sherwood's tried to rewrite history, claiming that he's the person who kind of discovered Harry Kane and what have you. But actually, if you look at Sherwood's time there, it wasn't really until the kind of last month of his caretaker tenure that he was actually starting games for Sherwood. He'd been in, he'd been there for about four months prior to that and barely, barely played him. So again, I think it's Sherwood trying to rewrite history and and. Uh, claim credit for things he's got no no right claiming credit for and and Sissoko you know was in a you know came into the team really when Poch's team were beginning to kind of 
tail off and weren't quite, you know, obviously, we, you know, we still went to the Champions League and everything, but it wasn't quite the giddy heights in terms of what, what we were being served up and what we were watching as we'd had, had beforehand. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think if there's a common thread through all of them, it's probably that actually they all came through in the times when they were getting maybe a bit of a hard time from fans. They weren't in teams that were performing really well. I think it's especially in three of these cases where we have players that, as you've both said, nobody quite knew what their best position was when they first arrived. And so that uh, instantly leads, as we've discussed on this pod before, and you know that, that fans fans make judgments on on players playing in positions that are not familiar to those players necessarily and and they get judged on that by fans who don't know that who don't recognize that conversely fans also judge players who are being put into positions that they don't normally play i mean it's kind of mm-hmm. the same thing different perspective i'll take musoko as an example let's not forget he was signed at the end of a summer where it was very public that we failed to get Sadio Mane uh, because of the quote-unquote wages and that this was sort of the peace offering at the 11th hour from 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 Levy. Um, that was that was the word, you know. So already he's coming in with a little bit of, uh, you know, the, the wrong reflection on him, so to speak. And then all of a sudden he's being he's being played as a, as a deep, sort of a deep midfielder, really. And then he was stuck out on the wing. I mean, he was playing in, in, in two, he was playing in several areas that were just not his position. And, you know, I know that we all have our opinions on what his skill set is or what the ceiling for that skill set was. But there's no doubt that whatever ceiling there was to hit, he wasn't going to get a chance if he's playing in these other positions that are no good. So that slow start, you know, he's doing a job for the team. The fans see that, but they don't see the job. They just see him playing crap. (laughs) It's like, okay. I think Kane is the most fascinating of all for me. Harry Kane was never going to be anything other than a striker. And when he first arrived, you know, he was he was not in his best physical shape. He was a little slow, a little cumbersome. He worked and worked and worked and worked himself into becoming what he has become. That is hard work. And ironically, we now also have probably the best, you know, creative midfielder as well as a centre forward. His is the clearest trajectory for me. I, I would say actually that I think there probably was some doubts about his position because I mean the comparison when he was coming through was with Sheringham. Right. And I think everyone thought of him as a number ten. I think Sherwood said he was a nine and a half, didn't he? And I think I don't think that we quite knew what and that as it happens that's what he's ended up being but i think when he when he when he broke through i think he was as a nine wasn't he as a pure nine yeah i mean i think the comparison with teddy is also i mean i think a lot of that was based on physicality and 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 how he held himself and the fact that he didn't seem particularly fast when he first came in i mean i'm never entirely convinced that teddy was the number 10 that we see today. I mean, Teddy was always one of, yeah, he was always in a pair. He's always slightly yeah. off, but he was still always a forward. I mean, you'd never have dropped Teddy into, into midfield looking for 30, 40 yard passes. But, but I accept that that was a comparison. That was the comparison made at the time rather than, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're talking com- comparisons, I'm going to say some names here at you. This is, and this would be, you can carry this across to Steve Carr as well, but specifically for the Harry Kane, um, Rory Allen, Steve Slade, Jamie Slaver, Neil <laughs> Fenn, Paul McVeigh, Paul Mahorn, Lee Barnard, Cameron Lancaster. These I are all strikers. Them all. 
who came yeah. in through the academy. And I, I don't say that anyone yeah. had particularly high hopes for them. I, I, I guess at base level, you hope that an academy striker might come in and be as good as Mark Falco was, who was actually yeah. another player that Kane was compared to at some point. So I think by the time that Kane came through, you just thought, well, this is just another one of our academy strikers who's going to come in, play a few games, might get the old goal, and then they'll be playing in the second division for the rest of their rest of their career. Yeah, and, Fal- and Falco had a little bit of a slow start himself and wasn't really accepted by the fans for a long time. And that was almost by proxy of the fact that Crooks and Archibald were there. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. fact that actually Falco was extremely prolific in the end. When you look at his figures, they're pretty good. Mm. No, know, they were. Team, I mean, that was yeah, he was good. He was, I mean, he was really good. I mean, uh, yeah. And But you didn't see him that yeah. way. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other thing. A couple of these players, like Sissoko in particular, I think it's harder for people to see them as footballers simply because they're just not graceful. I mean, Musa's not a particularly graceful player. That does have an impact. You know. I, th- I think that could apply to Kane. Actually, I think physically yeah. he was a bit of a late developer. He was a bit yes. gangly and lanky, wasn't he, when he was when he first came yeah. through? Yeah. And you know, maybe didn't quite have the strength for it. And you yeah. know, you look at him now, and yeah. you know, he's incredibly strong and you know, impossible to get the ball off. You know, and you know, and just you know, but he wasn't like that when he first. Uh, you know, when he was young, when he got into the um, when you know when he had his loan spells, and I think I think probably a lot of the fans were kind of thinking, you know, who's this? Yeah. lanky well I, I remember it wasn't his first goal he scored for us because I think that was away at Shamrock Rovers but when he'd come mm. back in that 13-14 season he came off the bench and scored a goal for us against Hull in a league cup tie the, the game's pretty more remembered for Gilfie Sigurdsson scoring a goal of the season contender in the first half for us but Kane came off the bench when we were 2-1 down received the ball on the half turn it was almost Robbie Keane-esque and from about mm-hmm. 20 yards on, we all knew his strong foot was his right foot but he swept this ball in with his left foot from about 20 yards which almost became a bit of a trademark finish for him yeah. And you thought, this isn't just a blunt instrument here who they're going to try and like play long balls off and try and win flick-ons here. This is a kid with a bit of technique about him. And then when he did get into the first team later in the season, started scoring goals, it was the against Sunderland where he came on. I think he scored his first Premier League goal. And again, he just used strength or he just had a bit more pace or, or physically he was just on a slightly different level to what I, th- I think everyone else in the stadium was expecting and, of him. And I know he did a lot of work on increasing his speed, didn't he? He did a lot of fitness training in order to make himself quicker. And he's never going to be the quickest player, but you know, it's partly about timing the runs and kind of those bursts and where you can use that to your advantage. I think uh, Gareth, I know you, I know you know this, and I can't remember the game, uh, but we've discussed this on the pod before, and I, and you you knew it immediately. The turning point for me with with him was he came on as a sub and he booted the ball out, chased the ball down, and booted it out for a throw. And I can't for the life of me who was like, was it Old Trafford? Was it to, to well, waste time? It was- it was it was man it was it was it was at Old Trafford when we won two one there on New 2-1. Year's Day twenty fourteen. I, I, I was right. there, and he'd come on as a forward because it was Sherwood had come in and he was picking Soldado yeah. and Adebayor. And I a, remember you know, it really four, well. Four, 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 two. And Harry Kane came on. And he was clearly offside, and it was one of those just with yeah. the way that the law is written that the <laughs> linesman's not going to put his flag up until the player actually goes to the ball. So he waited till the last possible moment, and then went and smashed the ball as far as he could into the you know, in, into the stands at Old Trafford there which triggered you know, the linesman then to put his flag up and it delayed the play. So it showed a smartness about him. It was That was possibly the purest blooter I've seen. He blooted that thing, didn't he? It was yeah. just... It was actually but beautiful in its own way. <laughs> he knew exactly what he was 
doing. Um, it looked like he was he was being a bit thick. One, the, the, <laughs> like, apropos nothing here, but um, that Champions League game at Manchester City when we won when going four three when when Yama had the ball and he was desperately trying to waste time with seconds to go. And he thought, well, if I smash the ball into touch as far up the touchline as I can, it will delay play, which he did. And of course, they used multi ball in that game. So within within milliseconds of the ball going to the pitch, oh. the, the ball was returned to it. Um, and actually, no, I have got a sec- so so some point some point can we can we do a pod on favorite time wasting because i want to talk about the tanio uh, time <laughs> wasting against chelsea at some point so we'll, let's yeah, make a note yeah. of that and come back to oh, it very good yeah. i love shit, it spurs, i love it um no that, that does actually get me a segue for that manchester city game musa sissoko got injured midway through that match yes he did and there was a and of course kane was already out injured and, yeah. and i think it was delhi delhi maybe Salah. there was a collective scythe effectively that oh well sissoko's gone off we've got no chance now and that was such a turnaround because when we played Barcelona in the group stages at home, which would have been about October, November that I was time, there. I can yeah. remember the ball being cut across the edge of the penalty area into Soko stepping onto it and doing really what everyone anticipated he was doing, which was he ballooned it and it went into the stands at Wembley. And for me, that was, I mean, Milo, we, when we've been discussing and planning this pod, you've said that there was always sort of a tongue-in-cheek mm. appreciation of Sissoko. And I, I think that moment, so that was the November, it was really, that was Sissoko at high ridicule level. But the next group game we played was the Inter Milan home game where he got this, he was a sort of, a, again, trademark Sissoko sort of barreling run from the halfway mm. line where he assisted the assist. And that for me was the moment when he turned round his fortunes at Spurs. I think that's when fans looked at him and thought, actually, there is a serious player here who can genuinely add something to this team. And between that November and that what April time in that Man City game, when there was that, that collective groan and despair when he went off injured, thinking, well, yeah. we can't win he, a game unless Sissoko's in he, the team. He did, he did have a great, he had a really strong game against West Ham earlier in that season that you're talking about. Uh, we won 3-2 and he was really, really mm. strong in that game. And and I think actually, uh, it, it's, it's yeah, I thought he found his feet in, I thought he found his feet that season, um, to, to be fair. But uh, I mean, I, I'd never judge Musa Sissoko on his finishing. <laughs> Sorry, nobody's touching that. I think, Sissoko, I think Sissoko is a, is a decent box-to-box midfielder. You know, his engine's fantastic. Um, he... You know, he's really, really. It must be a pain to play against. He's, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a decent. He's an okay ball carrier. It's not, it's not Dembele level ball carrier. He's a line breaker, but he's, he's good at it. And I think you're right in terms of a lot of the kind of criticism where it was where he was asked to do kind of things. He's, he's not so good at. You know, he's, he's not a defensive mm-hmm. midfielder. I can remember him playing on the, you know, the, as a right wing forward in a front four. You know, that's not his game. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, I don't think you could ever fault his effort. I think, <laughs> but yeah. his well, I think best it was a misconception for, about what we I was were say, I think his best him. for his best for us wasn't wasn't exceptional. If you look at the other players on this list, if you look at their very very peaks, you got some you know well two world class players and and the rest are very very good Premier League level players. And I think Sissoko is a is a level below that. You know, I think his best he's a competent club player, and I yeah, think that's, I mean, I, I think that's I, fine, but. I think yeah. I think that's an excellent point, but I think you know that that what I'd add to that is that you know his climb from um, mm-hmm. from donkey to goat, if you will, <laughs> was was quite possibly more exaggerated and more at uh, the, the the rate the, the rate of incline was was steeper than any of the others, simply because, as you say, he's actually not particularly talented or gifted footballer so for him to even yeah. become as important as he did even for six months and the turnaround was 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 really pretty sensational but yes to your point you know 
Musa at his best is still, you know, a decent midfielder, maybe nothing yeah. that you'd spend 60 million quid on. And that's why I think some of the support for him was a little tongue in cheek. And mm. it's not, you know, it's, that's not a bad thing. You know, I think we, we talked about cult heroes before, you know, there's, there's something for, and I'm not saying he's shit, yeah. but there is something, there is something about players who, you know, as I was talk, talked last week about kind of going to watch non-league football, I can think of non-league players where he's kind of, he, we know he's shit, but he's our shit and mm-hmm. leave him alone. And yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying Sissoko's shit, but there is no, a little no, bit no. of that kind of, um, he's ours, leave him alone. Yeah. yeah. I thought there was a huge misconception about what we were getting with him. And this is sort of mm. bloke down the well, pub level of analysis, which is probably two steps above what you quite. read on social media. But I think the, what we got from Newcastle fans was, this is a player who's got a really high technical ceiling, but he doesn't give a shit. And I think what we found quite quickly with Stoke mm. was the complete opposite of that, was that there was no questioning his um, his determination and his, his willingness for the team. But actually there was a like quite a severe technical flaw. On him, His techers were not quite up to it. No, no I mean, for sure. And, and but uh, so I suppose I don't know. We look at turning points for for Musa Dembele. I, I I find it hard to to pin a particular moment beyond when maybe Poch actually just started realizing where he should be playing and where yeah. to get the best out of him. But I mean, can you uh, either of you nail a particular game? Yeah, I, I, I kind of. It was the start of the fifteen sixteen season. So in fourteen fifteen, which was Poch's first season, he only started ten games, but came on as a sub sixteen times, and he was well behind um, Ryan Mason and Bentaleb in the pecking order, the central midfield spots, to the extent that Bentaleb and Mason were the two that got picked for the League Cup final against Chelsea, and Dembele came on as a, I think, came on as a sub. Um, at the start of the following season, though, he actually started on the front of a, on the right of a front three. So that was where he was picked. And there was quite strong talk at the time that he was going to be sold to Sunderland. And again, he was at that stage in his career where you thought, well, if he was sold, I'm not really sure that we'll miss him. (laughs) But there was that game against Villa on the Monday night, which is, and he scored a goal quite early on in the game. And it was famous because it was the game when Mike Dean was celebrating giving the advantage (laughs) afterwards. And that was because there'd been a foul on Dembele, who typically had just shrugged his marker off, um, gone forward another 20 yards and actually took took his goal pretty well. So I think that was the point where and you, you could really start to see what he was giving to the team. And then he was part of that incredible run at the back end of that season when we were chasing Leicester and, you know, actually winning a lot of games. And he was a really, really integral part of that. Um, and he dovetailed really nicely with Deli and Eriksson in, in the centre of midfield. Yeah, I mean, I think the turning point is where he's converted into a central midfielder, line breaker. And I think, you know, people... <laughs> I think when people talk about Dembele with hindsight, I think there's a tendency to think that all of his career with us was like that. But actually, I think his period as a you know as a as a key integral player is actually quite short. Um, and yeah, yeah, so I think I think it's when you know the the thing he was exceptional at, and you know we're talking a few seasons here, but where he was exceptional is taking that ball deep, running. 10, 20 yards forward, no one could get the ball off him and laying it off someone else. And that's what he was exceptional at. And I think when we think about, you know, he came in to replace Modric. Modric is probably the best uh, kind of uh, volume passer, or actually maybe just midfield passer full stop that we've had in the modern era. And Dembele isn't a great passer. He's a great ball carrier. And I think he's early on, he suffers from comparisons to who he replaced. And then funnily enough, Sissoko, I think, suffers from comparisons with Dembele <laughs> early on as yeah, yeah. you know as his replacement because he's not quite as yeah. good line breaker as Dembele is he's not quite as difficult to get actually maybe he's 
maybe he is difficult to get the ball off, but he's not as elegant. You know, the thing about Dembele is it was just the elegance when someone's trying to get the ball off him. He just roll past people. Uh, with Sissoko, when doing the same thing, there was always a little bit of an element of chaos in it. Mm. And it, I think that's you know, the aesthetics, isn't it, maybe, that's the difference yeah. there. Yeah. He remains, to me, one of the most enigmatic players we've ever had and mm-hmm. uh well in the modern age i should say and i still every time i i think about him it, it's conflicted because the, the the importance and the talent w- w- was huge but i just never felt even though he overcame a slow start uh, a bewildering start maybe um you know somewhat uh displaced start if you will to establish himself in this role i still feel we never quite got enough out of him either in minutes or as a player um but what you have to say is despite that despite the lack of minutes and despite the relatively short amount of time he had a huge impact on us for him to still be talked about by his ex-pros but by other pros by the way who will turn around and tell you he was that he was by far the player on the training pitch that took their breath away i mean that will tell you that that you know the talent that was there i just wonder if we ever really saw it consistently yeah. i tell you what i was just looking at these players here we've got a pretty good five-a-side team here actually <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah kane in goal right kane in goal <laughs> of course car and bale as wingbacks <laughs> yeah um, yeah can i, I suppose you yeah, you wouldn't put them you wouldn't put at forward would you no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, can i just go on to steve Carr for a little bit but, um, yes please about him and i think what was interesting about him when i looked at his his stats he said he made his debut under Aussie Ardiles in 1993 as a 17 year old and then really had no look in whatsoever in the first team for, for a good three years after that and when he came back into the team it's a bit like Harry Kane I, I reeled off the list of those centre forwards who come in from the academy and really made no impact and you could do exactly the same for, for you know, defenders and midfielders who had done likewise um, and Carr came into the team and you just thought he's, he's a pretty poor player not got a particularly good side as well but I think what was different with him is once he did establish himself in the team he just carried on so throughout the 97-98 season which was actually some correcting myself not Milo here um, which was the um, Christian Gross season mm. he played all league he played every league game that season and the following year which became the George Graham year he, he only missed one game then as well so Carr's turnaround I think where people noticed him was just the fact that every week he was there and you, you know you often see this now where we as supporters of one club will notice a player and then about Two months later, you find in the white in the, the mainstream media they tag on to that as well as whether that's a good good player or a bad player. And I think this is, of course, the days before the internet. Well, the very very primitive forms of the internet, certainly before social media with Stephen Carr. But people were going to games and they were coming away and sort of midway probably through that ninety seven ninety eight season, the year under George Graham, they'd go away and say, "Yo, that Stephen Carr is really good actually. He's mm. not just a youth team player taking a place in the team. He's doing a really really good job here." And I, I think. The the role of a right back, particularly then, was really, really well defined. But you couldn't really get the role of a right back wrong. The, the job was whether you were playing for Manchester United or whether you were playing in the third division. The right backs kind of all did the same thing. Um, so there was no there was no risk really of him being misused in that system. But they did come to a point, and uh, Milo, you, you looked it up, didn't you? He was um, he was recognised in end of season awards. Stephen, yeah. Carr. So see, so he was members player of the year in ninety nine and then two thousand. So um, that's so the first time there is that first Graham season. And then 2000, 2001, he was in the PFA team of the year. And then and again in 0203. So he missed the 0102 season. He had knee surgery at the beginning of the season. 
missed the whole of that season and didn't come back till the following September. Um, so I think it's actually quite interesting that he, he's got, he's made the PFA team the season either side of that lost season as well. Um, I, I tell you what, say Carr would have been perfect for Conte's uh, wingback, the perfect Conte wingback, I think. He was a very miserable man from what I remember. <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, he was, he really was not very cheerful. I mean, his public persona uh, was not was not that positive. And is he not the player? And I'm sure, and I was at this game, so I should remember, when he went to Newcastle, is he not the player who Sir Bobby Robson famously said, show him inside, talking about Timothy Atuba, mm-hmm. because he hasn't got a right foot, <laughs> to which Atuba unleashed a 25-yard bender into the top right. I think it was Stephen Carr he was playing against. It would have been right, day. and that was that was within months of him leaving us fairly yeah, I was, I was at Newcastle. That, I was at that game, and there was double joy. Number one, because, of course, as neither of you will be surprised to hear, Timothy Atuba was right up my alley as, like, <laughs> just an ultimate cult hero. I mean, my God. Mm. I mean, not he doesn't belong on this list, and I shouldn't really <laughs> even be talking about him, but uh, tangentially off having done Stephen Carr, I feel it worth mentioning he was what a cult hero. <laughs> so just briefly back to Bale. So, you know, signed in 2007. So saying that, you know, he really got his chance um, when, Benny got injured in 2009-10. Yeah, you know, the September of that game is like the first Premier League game that he'd he'd won. He played in and won. And I think what's remarkable here is that kind of that turnaround from there. So you've got um, obviously that that win at, at, at Burnley. Um, then he gets his chance in the FA Cup in January, the third round against Peterborough when we went four nil. Um, and then that April, he scores the winning goal against Arsenal. In the North London derby, three days later, he gets the winning goal against Chelsea in a two-win win over Chelsea, who went on to win um, win the title. And then in April, he's got a Player of the Month, Premier League Player of the Month. So you've got a player in September who's never won a Premier League game, and then within what seven months, he's picking up you know Premier League. You know, player of the month and he's what scored the winning goal against our big two rivals um, well, was and and i by the way those were that those without those wins we don't get crouch crouch fest. Yeah. and and i was gonna say the following season you've got the champions league playoff game against mm. young boys so less than a year later he's he mm. sets up all four goals in the four nil win over young boys that gets us into the champions league mm. um yeah, and his then first hat, and, and then yeah, two months later, first hat trick against Inter Milan, who were the reigning European champions. So yeah, what that, a, yeah, that's thirteen months you've got there. Yeah, and and before that, you know, at the beginning of that, you have got people saying he's a curse, don't play him. Yeah. It's interesting what you know. And then when we talk about turnaround uh, point, I mean, you know, you've described a twelve month turnaround point, which I think would be equally accurate. But if we look for a defining moment, it is surely the San Siro. And that and that hat trick, which really did put him. I mean, that yeah. was the moment that everyone realised. Oh my God, this guy is very, very special. In terms, I've, I've done the same thing for kind of the awards he picked up individually. This might take a little bit longer than Stephen Carr. Mm-hmm. Um, Spurs Young Player of the Year. I hope so. Nine ten <laughs> and ten eleven. Spurs Player of the Year twelve thirteen. UEFA Team of the Year in 2011 and 2013, Welsh Footballer of the Year in 2010, 2011, 2013, Premier League Player of the Month, April 10, January 12, February 13, PFA, PFA Team of the Year in 2010, 11, 11, 12, 12, 13, PFA Players Player of the Year, 2010, 11 and 12, 13, PFA Young Player of the Year, 12, 13, Premier League Player of the Season, 12, 13. So 
you know, if we're taking the first one of that, that's nine ten, which is uh, which is yeah. Spurs Young Player of the Year, which is that season that the, the, the kind of that twelve yeah. months I I picked up from his first mm. his first Premier League yeah. win. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I mean we've covered so much in this. I think there's there's probably I mean there's probably only one question left to ask um, in this in this section. By the way, let me just slide in one other name that does fit in here, and I'm the only person old enough to remember this. But I do want to tell you both that Tony Galvin also suffered um, really like really bad, uh, you know career perception or, or club perception, whatever. There was a, a negative perception of how effective he was as a footballer when he first came to us from Hull City in the late 70s. And my word, he became such an intrinsic part of the side that won those 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 FA Cups in 81 and 82. So um, just wanted to throw that in there. It has happened outside the digital age. It did happen. You just didn't hear about it as much for obvious reasons. And you only heard about it at games or at pubs when people were moaning about that donkey or whatever. Um, but I think that, you know... Th- Maybe the, the final question on all of this, you know, is and uh, and and uh, <laughs> well, by the way, there is a mention of Guns and Roses headlining Glastonbury uh, in this note because I am going to ask whether players need a little patience. But uh, a, a tangent here, <laughs> Ram, uh, our very own Ram, uh, you know, he he just played at Glastonbury, um, and I think that we should uh, we should recognise that. We should take a pause for a moment. <laughs> Well, recognised that the Serenity Club, which is Ram's band, played Glastonbury. So well done to you, Ram, um, from all of us. But back to the point. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do we just need a little patience? I th- well, yeah. I sung that better than I could sing that better than <laughs> Axel did at Glastonbury. <laughs> Do we need a little patience? Uh, probably better than him. Anyway. Yeah. What do we think? Uh, the um, patience? It does absolutely. But by the way, that cultural range went straight over my head. The only patience <laughs> I know is the one that take that saying. That's. <laughs> I imagine it's a different song. I wouldn't know. We're, we're yes, in different the, wheelhouses yeah, the, yeah, here, aren't no, we? Yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. it is. It is a different song, Gareth. It was yeah. actually it was actually quite a big song by Guns N' Roses there, Patience. Okay. That's okay. I've yeah. got patience for you to learn about that. Thank you. Um, there, there definitely is patience. You look at Dembele, it took us three and a half years to get the best out of him. Bale, we would have, I think, if he'd left us at some point in 2009, we'd have... We would famous have thought, selling into Notts Forest. Famous into Forest. But look, as a, as a fan base, generally across the board, I think if he had been sold, you'd have thought, well, so what? We're, we're not missing him. And I, I, I guess I d- didn't read this in, explicitly in the notes here, but I, I guess what we're trying to link this to is to have patience with players that... Um, um, I mean, look, the Celso and um, Dombele, this is now be their fifth <laughs> season with us. They're perhaps slightly beyond that Dembele redemption stage. But and even someone like Ryan Sessignon, who joined that same summer. Um, sometimes it's there's a certain amount of luck that you need to actually make it. And say, particularly if you've been on the back foot before that, because fan opinion is against you. And sometimes you just need that opportunity, as Bale did by Benny getting injured and having that run at left back in, in early 2010. And then Bele just finding himself in a finding a particular niche position within the team and a manager who was prepared to um, adopt some tactics and a team shape that, that fitted in with him or a manager who's prepared to give a young player the opportunity um, to have some games despite not impressing straight away. There is a certain amount of luck that comes into it and there needs to be a certain amount of patience. And I, th- I think those of us that have been watching Spurs long enough and remember all these players and Steph going back as, you know, as far to Tony Galvin and I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more in the years before that as well will know that some of the best players we've had haven't been ones who have hit the ground running when they first come in. The, the two that sprung to mind immediately to, to me on this was I've seen a lot of people um, looking at Dane Scarlett's stint at Portsmouth last year and maybe to a lesser degree Parrots, uh, Trey Parrots um, 
uh, season at, at um, Preston. And then just and judging them basic, just on goals scored. And, you know, if you look at Kane's many loans, he wasn't really very prolific on any of those. No. And, and he was going out time and time and time and time and time again. And we you know, was, you know, quite old by the time he actually came back and managed to establish himself. And people, you know, people, I've seen people judging those players. They haven't watched them. They're judging them on one metric and one metric only, not looking at, you know, changes that have happened at those clubs during the season or injuries or, you know, where they're being asked to play and then judging them on that metric. And I'm not saying that either of those players are going to make it or they're not going to make it. But I think, you know, I think the, the, the lesson for me, you know, what I would be saying is, you know, don't judge them on, on just one metric and, you know, there's more to it than that. And that, you know, they might, they're still young. They've still, there's still time potentially. And I think that that's the the concluding point when we look at these players, these uh, these five that we've mentioned and the several others that have flown in. It's context and patience. You have to apply it when you're looking at players, um, all players uh, coming into the club. I would even say that Emerson Royale counts in that uh, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Whilst I'm not suggesting that he has ascended to the ranks of, uh, <laughs> of a Bale or a Kane, you would certainly say that once again, much much like a Sissoko maybe, mm-hmm. his ascension uh, to where he is currently at uh, has come from a place of of near disaster. But of course, the context there is he was playing a position that he was not signed to play. So yeah, a little more patience and maybe a little more knowledge uh, and and context would suit everyone when it comes to looking at footballers who may or may not be performing as well as you expect them to. Take a look at all of that before you start throwing your hat in the ring, right? So anyway... Thanks, chaps. Uh, that was a good one. Yeah, just it was a lot of fun. Uh, lot of, uh, yeah, very good. We'll be back next week and throughout the summer with a weekly dose of Spurs-related chat. As always, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.